Bokatov, good morning. Shalom and welcome to our Aliyah day. I hope you're having a great morning so far. A blessed day so far, and I hope that your uh, day is going to become magnificently glorious. It is the prep day, as we are uh, preparing for the Shabbat, for the Holy Sabbath, and uh, getting ready to go to the island of time. We could use a little bit of that, right? We could use a little bit of the uh, warm breeze of the Shabbat, the nice uh, warm sand between our toes, uh, drinking our uh, kosher pina coladas on the beach, Baruch Hashem, and uh, that's going to be wonderful, a foretaste of the um, Olam Haba, or the Olam Chaba, some people say, Baruch Hashem. You know, I was sitting at my desk this morning just preparing for our time together, and something just came to my mind that uh, does so from time to time, and I often will write this on my desk calendar. And that is the phrase that Avraham said to uh, Hashem when he was speaking to him right before he began to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, I am dust and ash. I am dust and ash. And I thought, you know, what a great thought for the day. I am dust and ash. It runs counter to the idea in our modern age where we have to have constant affirmation of, uh, of ourselves in order to build our self-esteem. And, and uh, some people might think of the, uh, the phrase, I am dust Nash, to be something that is contrary to building self-esteem. But in fact, it's not. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we understand that we're dust and ash, that we're really nothing, that we really don't know anything, that we really have so much to learn and so, so many areas to grow, when we really have what's uh, true humility, not false humility, there is something... There is something actually very real uh, about false humility, which is kind of uh, seemingly ironic, but meaning that it does exist. You know, uh, dressing down, for instance, because uh, we, we talked about last week's poor portion was a lot, a lot about the, uh, almost entirely, in fact, about the, the glorious clothing that the priest wore. Uh, for a leader of a religious community to dress in, uh, in jeans and an untucked shirt, uh, in order to come and deliver a message so that he appears or she appears uh, relevant, quote-unquote, to the, the people watching. That's false humility. That's not real humility. Real humility is dressing up, for instance, because you know you want to honor the King of Kings, but not thinking anything great of yourself. But anyway, I am dust and ash is really um, a fantastic idea because once we understand that we are nothing... That's when God has something to work with. That's when God has, has the proper materials with, with which to build something magnificent. And a human being can take some clay and some water and whatever else tools they need, whatever other ingredients are involved, and they can make a pretty beautiful, sometimes, if I made one it wouldn't be quite so beautiful, but sometimes they can make a, a piece of pottery that's quite lovely. How much more so in God. When we understand that we're dust and ash, then we give him something to work with, and he can turn that into something beautiful. And for us, it does give us a, self, a sense of self-esteem. The best self-esteem we can have is understanding that everything that we are comes from him. And as a result, we understand likewise that we're dust and ash. It prevents us from getting angry. We live in a world where everybody gets offended about everything. There are trigger phrases for almost anything. It's ridiculous, absurd. And that's because the world is full of pride. 
We get offended because we're prideful. We get angry because we're prideful. We get hurt because we're prideful. When we're dust and ash, who can hurt us? Who can offend us? Who can make us mad? What are we to get uh, offended about? We're nothing. So anyway, for what it's worth, dust and ash. Be dust and ash today. Forever, whoever is humble, God will lift you up. I want to uh, play catch up this morning. We are in the 6th and 7th Aliyah. I actually, in my zeal, uh, ended up reading the 6th Aliyah yesterday. Uh, Did not uh, quite catch that I was doing so. But we did read the 6th Aliyah to the end of uh, chapter 34. The 7th Aliyah actually begins uh, in verse 27 of chapter 34. So the 6th Aliyah runs from verse 10 through 26. So we didn't get quite to the end of... uh, of uh, chapter 34. Magnificent chapter, but I do want to go back and catch some things. Uh, the Left Behind series, as it were, uh, because <clears throat> we uh, there's just so much. There's so much wonderful things. First of all, going back to all the way back to chapter 32 and verse 13, we read uh, something interesting here because there is a very much an idea that uh, persists, particularly amongst... Um, uh, anti-missionaries anyway, that that a man dies for his own sins. People have heard that. That's actually led many people, unfortunately, away from the Messiah. that has been taught, oh, look, a man dies for his own sins. But this is not a Jewish idea in any way, shape, or form. The reality is, is that Judaism teaches explicitly that a Zadik can die, can atone in one way or the other, through death or otherwise, for the sins of of uh, Israel. And in fact, Judaism teaches without any argument or doubt whatsoever that the Mashiach to come first was to be Messiah, son of Yosef, son of Joseph, and he would die, suffer for the sins of Israel, period. Without question, without dispute. Everybody's universal on that. Anybody that doesn't believe that would actually be outside, way outside the bounds of Judaism, period. And uh, some Jews don't even know that, by the way. There's some Jewish people don't realize that. Uh, most do, but some don't. They don't realize this. <clears throat> but it's really easy because uh, a lot of uh, Messianic believers, of course, uh, are former Christians, and they're, they've been taught and trained not to read Jewish literature that somehow it's evil or bad or wicked. And as a result, they come to a, a gunfight with a pocket knife. And uh, they don't have anywhere near uh, the skills to be able to understand what's being discussed here. So somebody comes along and says, well, look, the book of Ezekiel says a man should die for his own sins. And everybody goes, oh, my gosh, that means that uh, we can't have Mashiach. Well, it says right here, remember for the sake of Avraham. This is, um, <clears throat> this is Moshe praying to Hashem. And the comment says the appeal to the Zukut Avot, that is the merit of the patriarchs, is the final argument used by Moses, and it turns out to be the decisive one. I should also mention before I forget um, that when we go to high holiday services, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and we're making our appeal to God, Jewish people, we do not say, we do not, bold, underline, all caps, 
We do not say, God, look at me. Look at everything I did this year. I was so wonderful. Look how many times I tied feeling. Look how many times I wore a seat seat. Look at all the kosher eating I did. Wasn't it magnificent? Look at all the sadaka I gave. Look at all the charity I did. Aren't I so amazing? You should forgive me. That's not what we say. What we say is, God, I am nothing. What I have to offer is pathetically worse than nothing. So you should look at Isaac. He laid himself on the altar, so therefore, please, Hashem, remember Isaac in place of me. What are we doing? We're asking God to take the merit of the only begotten son, the son that Abraham loved, and forgive us for it. Selah. It immediately wins. So he writes here that when Moshe invoked the merit of the patriarchs, it says it immediately wins divine approval for repealing the decree of destruction. On the next page, Rabbi Monk points out something else, though, that is in Shabbos 55a, um, to, and also uh, in the Tosafot. It says, Although we owe so much to the Sukkot Avot, to the merit of the forefathers, there may be times when this merit has been used up or is not available. Yikes. Yikes. Goes on to talk about that we can re- rely then upon the um, upon the 13 merits, the 13 attributes, that is, I should say, of God, which is akin to saying God's grace, his mercy, his favor, compassion, love, etc. The point I wanted to make with reading that was that the reality is, is that even though we have the merit of our forefathers, that merit sometimes is all used up, like we're just out of cash, or... It's not available for some reason, which is another reason why we need Mashiach, because his merit is never used up and he is always available. This is why he provides atonement, not just for his generation, not just for future generations, but he provides atonement. According to the Midrash, he provides atonement for all generations, past, present, and future, and to include, even as we read in the Midrash sometime back, even to include stillborn babies. Mashiach provides atonement for the babies that weren't even born. He provides atonement for everybody. So, uh, something else I want to point out here to Rabbi Monk's uh, comment um, to chapter 32 and verse 24, where it talks about a calf emerged from the fire. This is something that we talked about before, but we didn't cover it in the Aliyah. Uh, I think this must have been the second Aliyah. But anyway, that the scripture indicates that when Moshe was went up to Aaron and said, Aaron, what are you doing? How could you do this? What's going on? Aaron makes a comment that on the surface seems comical and ridiculous, but we have to understand it's in God's holy Torah. So, uh, <clears throat> we said, um, in verse 24, in fact, let's just read this. Um, he says in verse 24, so I said to them, who has gold? They removed it and gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and this calf emerged. So we read something like that and we think, oh, this is so silly. Aaron is just trying to skirt responsibility. He's just trying to say 
that I uh, had nothing to do with it. I just, I took the gold, I put it in the fire, and uh, hey, uh, all of a sudden this calf came out. I was just standing around minding my own business. And we look at that and we think how ridiculous, how absurd, but the fact of the matter is he wasn't kidding. The reality is he did throw the gold in the fire and a golden calf emerged. This goes back to the principle that <clears throat> the Hasatan curse be he copies God. He mimics God. God, if you remember, had Moses to throw the gold in the fire and what came out? When God was involved, when God's Torah was involved, what happened? He threw the gold in the fire and the menorah, the light of the world, came out. A divine light of the menorah. This is why when Yeshua said, I am the light of the world, he's referring to the, the, the menorah that was divinely made, not made by human hands. So you have to understand, when, when Yeshua says stuff, we, sometimes we read it and we just speed bump over it because we're trying to get to what we think is the, the really important uh, lesson. <laughs> but the minute he said, I'm the light of the world, that was the lesson. And everybody who, who heard him say that was like, oh my goodness, do you hear what he just said? He was divinely made. What? He's the Torah made, made what? Anyway, I digress. When the people who had no Torah... Now understand the sages talk about what was going on. It wasn't so much that they didn't believe in Hashem. It wasn't so much that they were looking for another God. They believed in Hashem. They, they were just trying to copy the method of the nations around them and from where they had just come. And so they wanted to make for them an image. They wanted to make for them an idol that would represent Hashem. This is why they said it's a festival for Hashem. So the reality is, is that when you have Torah in your life, when you put that gold in the fire, what comes out all by itself, supernaturally, is a menorah, is light, is understanding, is wisdom, is clarity, is the oil of anointing, all those things that the menorah represents. However, when you don't have Torah and you say, well, I have faith in God, but I don't have Torah, when you throw that gold in the fire, what comes out is a golden calf. Which um, means you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the understanding, you don't have the light. All you have is a calf. You have a false representation of the one true God. And it says here, why did the calf come out? Why, 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 why? Because it says, according to the uh, an opinion, this result came about through a plate which bore the divine name and upon which Moses had written, Rise up, O Bullock, rise up, O Bullock, for the purpose of miraculously raising the coffin of Joseph out of the Nile. If you, if you remember that story. He, Joseph was buried in the Nile. They, Moses wanted to go collect his bones because that was part of the, the covenant, part of the promise. He couldn't find it, so he wrote on a, on a, on a, a piece of a, a, a plate, as it were, the divine name, and he wrote this phrase, Rise up, O Bullock, rise up, O Bullock. Why did he say Bullock? What's he talking about? Because the prophecy about Joseph, it says, is Joseph in Deuteronomy 33, 17, is compared to an ox, compared to a bullock. So he throws that into the water, and, and, and immediately the coffin of, of uh, Yosef floats to the top, and he takes the coffin, and the rest is uh, history. But there was a uh, man 
named Micah who came into possession of the plate and he carried it as an idol. He was more interested in the miraculous power. Micah was the one who went to all the prophetic conferences. Micah was the one who was waiting for the prophetic word every five minutes instead of studying the Torah. Micah was the one who wanted to have hands laid on him at every every meeting instead of actually just eating kosher. Micah, and, and you know, you know, he, God healed me in spite of my bad behavior. Micah was that guy, and he took the the plate and he was holding it as an idol. So he said, "Hey, let's throw this in the fire." And what happens is is that they made Joseph into an idol. They made the ox into an owl. That's what happened. That's what happened. Now, moving right along. Again, we're kind of sporadically covering some things here, but this is the Left Behind series um, for the Aliyah this week. Who wants to be a Noahide? Raise your hand out there. How many hands we have up? Okay. Talking about Noahides, I'm glad you brought it up. It says the word, this is to um, chapter 33 and verse 16. And I and your people are made distinct. Uh, and I and your people are made distinct. Let's read the whole verse. It says, How then will it be known that I have favor in your eyes, I and your people, unless you accompany us? And I and your people are made distinct. Say distinct. Distinct is the word that means that it is, uh, there's something special. Are made distinct from every people on the face of the earth. So it says the word veniflinu, are made distinct, is interpreted by Ramban as we will be the objects of miracles derived from Pele, miracle, which is one of the names of the Mashiach, by the way, but it means wonderful. This is in contrast to the nations. This is in contrast to the nations. You want to be a Noahide? Who wants to be a Noahide? Let me see your hand again. Okay. You should just know that if you're Israel, which means you, can, you, you become a convert and become part of Israel, then you get to live in the realm of the miraculous. But this is in contrast to the nations who are governed by the laws of nature. They didn't tell you that when they were trying to sell you the Noahide uh, uh, nonsense. Noahide nonsense, I like that. They didn't tell you that when they were trying to sell you the Noahide nonsense package. Uh, that, oh, you just be a Noahide. Uh, why? So that you can be governed by the laws of nature, live on a second-class citizen, sit at the back of the bus. Isn't that wonderful? Noahide, by the way, might as well be synonymous with Messianic Gentile, in case you're wondering. It says in verse 17, Even this thing of which you spoke I shall do. So God says in verse 17, Hashem said to Moshe, Even this thing of which you spoke I shall do, for you have found favor in my eyes, and I have known you by name. Rabbi Yochanan records in the Talmud in Barakot 7a, who explains Hashem's granting two requests by Moses, that the divine presence rest upon Israel, say Israel, Israel, did not say France, it did not say the United States, it did not say Ireland, it did not say Asia, it did not say uh, China or Japan or Australia, it said Israel. The divine presence will rest upon Israel and, number two, not say not. There you go. Not. Not upon the other nations of the world. So who want to be a Noahide again? Uh, no more hands are up. All right, Baruch Hashem. All right, it says here, <clears throat> um, I want to cover something else too. This is such a beautiful insight about uh, something that Zakin, which means elder, by the way, that Zakin uh, Yosef shared in his Wednesday night class on Hesed. 
as he was launching into the class on Chesed, uh, one of the three pillars um, that we uh, uh, live by, and um, part of the uh, conversion class. Zakin Yosef was talking about something so important. He's talking about pacing yourself in observance, which we've we've talked about before. But he said um, that for the first couple of years that he and his wife were counting the Omer, that he wanted to really get into it, but the reality is is that they didn't they didn't really feel much. You know, we live in a world where everybody wants to feel something. Live by our emotions. I want to feel it. If I don't feel it, I won't do it. But being the wise man that he is, he wanted to feel it, but he didn't feel it. He just did it. And so for two years, for two years, when it came time to count the Omer from the 16th of Nisan to Shavuot, he would just count the Omer and go through the blessings, go through the bracha, you know, uh, go through the the uh, spiritual uh, purif- purification and so on. And but he didn't really feel anything, but he wanted to. But he said the third year, in the third year, all of a sudden things changed, and even he he said he and his wife both noticed it, and now it became. It has become like the highlight of the year. They don't want it to end. When the 50 days are over, they don't want it to end. And it brings up a wonderful, wonderful uh, lesson to us all. As it says here, this is uh, in reference to chapter 34 in the uh, second verse, I believe it is, or the first verse. It says, Midrash Haggadol suggests by the words of King David referring to Moses, it is good for me that I have been afflicted in order that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71 Moses had fasted, toiled, and studied diligently for three periods of 40 days, each before he received the second set of tablets. He had, a, he had the immense task of mastering and understanding the complete body of oral law, which came with the second commandments. What the Midrash seems to be saying is that it is because Moses had to afflict himself in acquiring the knowledge required for the second tablets that they became more precious in his eyes. What one attains as a result of toil and striving is more dear than that which one receives as a gratuitous gift. Sometimes we do things whatever the mitzvah may be, and we instantaneously feel an emotional high, an emotional response. But there's many times that we don't feel that. There's many times when you, as a man, might wrap feeling and don't feel a thing. And maybe you wrap feeling, just to use that as an example, for months and months and months, maybe even years, and you don't feel anything. You want to, but you don't feel anything. And then all of a sudden, bam. Every time you wrap feeling, you feel like you're on, you're on Mount Moriah, standing in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because you toiled in that mitzvah. And too often in our modern society, we are driven by emotion. If we don't feel it, we don't feel that we want to give up. And this is, and we have people, we have le- political leaders and other leaders and, and, re- and religious leaders who, who implore us, be led by your emotions. 
Be led by your emotions. And my friends, we need to be led by truth and not by our emotions. We need to be led by facts. Whether we feel it or not makes no difference. Whether or not we feel like obeying, and when we obey, if we get goose pimples, great. If we don't, who cares? Obedience is not based upon our emotions, what we feel. And, I should add, it's not based on what we think about it either. Or what we philosophize about it. doesn't matter. All right. On to something else. Again, I apologize. We're jumping around all over the place. I know. Please forgive me. I just, there's so many good things I wanted to mention. They're not necessarily connected. So it says here, one of the anti-missionary arguments about the Messiah is, how come God did not, or excuse me, how come Yeshua, rather, did not reveal himself in the open public in such a grandiose uh, manner um, that God did on Mount Sinai. If if it's going to be uh, like it, like uh, we say, then why doesn't he come down in a cloud of glory with all the angels and thunders and lightning in front of mo- uh, hundreds of millions of people and uh, all those kind of things? And we the presumption is that that's exactly what God would do when the covenant is renewed, right? Right, only wrong. So it says here, uh, comment to chapter 34 and verse 3 in Rabbi Monk's book again, no man may ascend with you. Rashi observes that the first tablets were affected by the evil eye. Why? Because they were given publicly with pomp, before a multitude of people and amidst, and amid thunderous noise. What was the result of that? Ultimately, we were dancing around the calf. So what's he going to do next time? So it says, This indicates the value of moderation and restraint. Why then, wonders Safas MS, were the first tablets, in fact, accompanied by such publicity? He relies... He replies, rather, that the extraordinary events of the revelation on Mount Sinai, the multitude of people, the crashing thunder, the awesome lightning, the prophetic inspiration, were necessary to make a critical and decisive impact upon the soul of the people. It wasn't a mistake. It was done on purpose to make that emphatic statement. What was the statement? These displays, he writes, brought them to the realization that the Torah was their treasure. Okay, so we established that fact. So it says, the events which surrounded the giving of the first tablets generated in the people the will and the enthusiasm to keep the Torah and to cherish it. Why? Because it was clear it was from God. Now, at the giving of the, of the second tablets, a.k.a. the new covenant, they understood that it was necessary to treat them as, as one does a treasure, distinctly and with prudence. So in other words, why didn't why didn't Yeshua just make himself just completely revealed out in public, um, just uh, uh, you know, right out there with thunder and lightning, uh, make himself known? Even his own brethren, even his own brothers, were saying that they were encouraging him to do that. The answer is that's not how the second covenant was given. The second covenant was given in uh, privacy. The second covenant was given in seclusion. The second covenant was given with uh, uh, close to the vest. So everything that Yeshua did, even his 
coming, even the manner in which he revealed himself on a <clears throat> relatively small letter uh, level, was actually in accord with the giving of the Torah and the renewed covenant at Mount Sinai. Isn't that amazing? So coming back now to the sixth Aliyah, which as I said, we really read yesterday. Going back to um, those 13 attributes, beautiful 13 attributes we talked at length about yesterday, and uh, we didn't go through each attribute, but all of those are listed in your art school Humash, so I encourage you to um, go back and read through each of those attributes. Really beautiful things they have to say. In verse 10, he said, Behold, I seal a covenant with you. So Rabbi Yehud and the Talmud um, contends that the covenant refers to the 13 attributes. That this covenant, this is really the covenant of grace. He says, uh, and again, it's, it's given, I want you to understand that the 13 attributes, the covenant of grace, are actually given in concert with the renewed covenant. What is the renewed covenant or the new covenant? The new covenant is exactly like the first covenant. <clears throat> the difference here, as the commentators put out, point out, is that God now couples it with his 13 attributes. Why? What well, says Rabbi Yochanan added that if the verse did not say, Vayavor Adonai Alpanav, Hashem passed before him was not written, as it appears, no one would dare utter it. The verse indicates that Hashem wrapped himself, as it were, in a talit, like a prayer leader, and showed Moses the ritual of prayer. And Hashem said to Moses, whenever the Israelites commit a sin, <clears throat> let them intone this prayer before me, and I will forgive them. So Moses, excuse me, the Hashem, this by the way is from Rosh Hashanah 17b. Mo, uh, Hashem appears to Moses in the form of a man. Not just in the form of any man, but in the form of a chazan, a prayer leader. And he says, listen, if you sin, then what you need to do is recite these 13 attributes before me and I will bring you tshuva. I will bring you forgiveness. I will bring you into tshuva. Goes on to talk about the fact that this is why we're supposed to emulate God. And, and the way in which we emulate God is to be people of compassion and mercy. There's a great paradox is pointed out here as well, and that is that, that after the dark period of our disgrace, that uh, Hashem actually draws closer to us. Because the, the, uh, some of the commentators point out that up until this time, the phrase Hashem, the God of Israel, had not been used, but after this time, we see this phrase to indicate that God has drawn even closer. This is the great paradox of making teshuva, of repenting. We all like to think that we should uh, be sinless and it, wouldn't that be wonderful? And it would be. Life would be great. But the paradox is, is that when we sin and then we make teshuva and draw, come back to God, we actually have a closer relationship to God. It isn't that true Sometimes that happens in our relationships. Sometimes we might have a relationship that goes sour. Maybe it's a friendship and we have a falling out. And then if we're mature enough, then we can come together and we can reconcile and, and seek true forgiveness 
and bury the proverbial hatchet. And many times, not always, but very often when that happens, the relationship is stronger. Consider the husband and wife. Show me a husband and wife that say they don't fight, and I'll show you a husband and wife that aren't being completely honest. The reality is, is that husbands and wives fight, but guess what? They have the strong relationship. It builds strength. That's the paradox. To be able to work through those disagreements and doing it in a healthy way actually builds and strengthens the relationship and creates a stronger unity. That's the paradox of, um, of Hashem. A couple more things I want to share this morning. And again, I appreciate you indulging me on this uh, seemingly sporadic um, uh, journey. Details matter. To chapter 34 and verse 14, it says, For you shall not prostrate yourself to an alien god. The word alien here is written acher. It's an aleph, hate, resh. In the Torah, the resh at the end of this word is enlarged. And the reason given is because, God forbid, we should read this word and mistake it for a dalit, in which case the word would read echad. And if you are familiar with looking at Hebrew, you'll notice that the resh and the dalit are very, very similar. There's just a, a very tiny little extension at the top of a dalit that makes it a resh to a dollar, a dalit to a resh. And so the Midrash points out that if we read this phrase as echad versus acher, we would be turning it around from the one God into an alien God. And so the difference, they say, between paradise and hell is only the width of a hair, talking about the extension of the Dalit. The point being is that details matter. Details matter. We have to be people that are detail-oriented. And again, this is in contrast to um, what we're taught in modern society, and particularly in, in our religious societies. Details don't matter. God doesn't care what you eat. He doesn't care what you wear. He doesn't ta- care what day you celebrate as a Sabbath. He doesn't care uh, at all anything about your daily life in terms of uh, these kinds of things. He only cares about the big stuff. And the reality is that is absolutely and utterly false. False, Completely contrary to what God says. The fact of the matter is, if we make the mistake of going from a Dalit to a Resh, then we make the mistake of turning the one true God into an alien God. Hasve Shalom. Final thing. Final thing for our, our parasha. The Midrash is talking here about um, Moses. And there's a big explanation. I wasn't able to get to this for the sake of time. About the source of Moshe's uh, illuminated face. But it says the Midrash offers another interpretation of the rays of glory. The Shekinah, that is the divine presence, and Moses jointly grasps the tablets of the testimony, which were six handbreadths in length. Moses held two handbreadths, 
<clears throat> the Shekinah held two, and the two in the middle put forth the light, the rays of glory, which illuminated Moshe's face. It says, this Midrash tells us that Moses had risen to such a high level of holiness that he was halfway between heaven and earth. The Torah calls him Ish Ha'Elohim, the man of God, Deuteronomy 33.1. It says here he was half human and half divine, as it were. He was able to grasp the work of Hashem and bring it down to earth. Huh. Moshe was Ish Elohim, the man of God, half human, half divine. So what was that about the divine Messiah, the so-called God-man being totally pagan in origin? What was that? I forgot. Is it being literal? No. But it does set a tone. It sets a precedent because Moses says, the final Redeemer will be a man like me, divine as it were. Baruch Hashem. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing prep day today. This is the end of our Aliyah. I want to thank you for spending the week with me and uh, learning with me as we are going went through uh, Kitisa. I hope that you will do me the honor of joining us for Shabbat and being with us here in the synagogue, whether in person or online, watching from all over the world. We want you to join us uh, tomorrow. If you can be with us in person, all the better. And uh, otherwise, have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing day. And with God's help, we will see you for the Aliyah Day uh, on this next Sunday. And with that, we bid you shalom.